0: Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. And today you're going to hear me talk to Duncan Putney. Uh, Duncan's been in my life since 1994. I met him when we were both auditioning for a lot of the same roles. We were about the same age, about the same size. He was very white bread and I was very Jewy. And so depending on which way the commercial producers or directors wanted to go, either I got the work or he got the work. And there were other people too. They would hire the black version of me, the Asian version of me, or the brown skin version of me or Duncan. Um, And if you're in shock, don't be. When you look at ads um, and you look at the history of advertising, you'll see that different types of people come and go. And um, also different uh, audiences for that advertising. So uh, anyway, we talk about that. But Duncan has been through a lot of other stuff. We used to do improv together, and we talk about that. And also, he is a writer. And he's got several screenplays happening, and we talk about what that's like. So Duncan's got a lot of creative stuff going on. And he's just an interesting, fun guy. And I hope you'll like meeting him as much as I liked chatting with him again. um, If you are interested in giving me information, asking me questions, go to isthatreallylegal.com. You can leave me a message there. You can get in touch with me. Please subscribe to the show. Rate this show. It's going to help people find the show. But for right now, sit back, relax, listen to Duncan Putney. Duncan Putney, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a while, huh? Yeah, as I'll probably say in my lead-in, I've known you since the 90s. And the reason I know that's true is that I know you uh, through our both going to auditions together. I think that's how I my first memories are of you when we were both active in the Boston area. Yeah. And it could have been one of two or three places because there weren't a ton of places where we did auditions. It would either be Carolyn Pickman or Maura Tai, who each had uh, studios where people did auditions. So that was Carolyn Pickman way back when. Right, right. That's correct. And we were, you and I were a couple of times, I believe, up for the same things in commercials where you I think we both looked like fairly young at the time, uh, you know, uh, professional men. So we could look like lawyers or reporters or doctors. We'd go up for commercial parts. You were just more of like a very, I don't know how to put this, non-ethnic, just kind of straight ahead white guy. And I was definitely the Jewish guy. What's if it please pass the Wonder bread and the whole milk. Yeah.
1: That's what you called in for.
0: you. I, I, I'll find out in a second. You look like your family could have come over on the Mayflower. You know, you're very, and I mean this nicely, yeah. generic American. You look like you could have a million different backgrounds, but they'd all be non-ethnic, if that makes sense, which may not be true at all. But you at least that's the way you look for casting purposes.
1: Well, you'd be, you'd be correct. We didn't quite come over on the Mayflower, but uh, my, on my mom's side, they came over with Governor Winthrop in the 1630s. Oh, wow. To Boston. And on my dad's side, uh, came over as a slave in 1640 from Scotland, was sentenced to slavery and not indentured servitude, but in slavery, he was was captured at the Battle of Dunbar and he was sent to the Saugus
0: Ironworks. Now, just so people know, I want to be clear because we don't use the video here. You are extremely white. I don't mean like as white as me, I'm pale. But you're definitely, when you say he was sentenced to slavery, that's when white people were, and I would have thought indentured slave saved back, indentured servitude, but you just clarified that completely. So how that's got to be a hell of a story. By the way, how do you know this? Uh, My mom's side's
1: pretty well researched because they were blue blood bastards, as I say.
0: I love that expression.
1: I mean, literally the bastard children of Mary Boleyn, and Boleyn's sister, and Henry VIII is one of the ancestors. Bunch wow. of, uh And um, my dad's side, uh, kind of, some of the ancestors always picked the wrong side in a fight. And uh, in the American Revolution, they picked the underdog and happened to luck out.
0: <laughs> one of the few times where they stayed at the table and rolled the dice and it went their way. Well, that's... Incredible. And they've always been where you are in New England, right? Well,
1: that's where they started. My dad's family migrated and went upstate New York. My dad's from up in the Adirondacks, where um, the general store and the post office was a room in someone's house. I mean, it was that small of of a place. And my mom is very proud. She's fifth generation Californian. So her ancestors went by wagon train and uh, around the horn on ships, or to the or to Panama, and they hike over to the other side to the Pacific, and took a ship up to California.
0: Uh, for for my listeners, you can tell right away why Duncan uh, became a great storyteller. You're just a storyteller. In the few sentences you're as you're relating this to me and our listeners, you are painting an amazing picture, just the way you're talking about it, um, and that's certainly. And we'll get to that obviously, but has that always been the thing for you being a storyteller?
1: Sort of, yeah. I've always been a writer. I enjoyed writing when I was very young. I had a speech impediment, I stuttered and stammered like you wouldn't believe. So, actually, writing was a little bit easier for me. I would, I hated when adults and teachers would interrupt me and say, think about what you're saying before you say it, you won't stutter. And I'd be like, I've been thinking about race, you know, for an hour now, and it's not coming out. So they just, they didn't understand. But I uh, I worked on it with some great, uh, I don't call them special ed type teachers that helped you out in the school system. And then right. a woman, when I got to college at UMass, Doris Abrams, who um, was uh, taught speech and diction. and would all you- that.
0: Which and I, UMass? I,
1: I, music helped as well singing really helps
0: sorry which UMass did you go to
1: I wouldn't say the real UMass Amherst
0: <laughs> I was I didn't want to be so arrogant to say that but you are or well we both are arrogant but you you clarified it so I don't from-
1: I don't want to get my school mad at me they're all the okay they're all UMass I say the original UMass out in the asparagus fields of western Massachusetts
0: and for people who don't know, because you're listening from a whole other planet, UMass, meaning the University of Massachusetts, Amherst is, I, I liken it to where my wife went to college. She's from the San Francisco area, and she went to Berkeley, which is a state school, just like UMass Amherst is. But as far as state schools go, these are both incredible jewels. UMass Amherst is a very rigorous program. And and just happens to be surrounded by other great schools in that area, like Mount Holyoke, Smith. Um, but yours was not an all girls experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, were, there were there were the the five colleges out there, and what's neat is you could take a class at any of the five colleges,
0: even the all women schools. You could yeah, go to Smith. as
1: long oh. as long if it like if you weren't able to, if it wasn't offered at your school or there was a conflict in your schedule. You could either take the class or audit the class at the other school. So Amherst, Holyoke, Smith. um, uh, You could just go check them out.
0: I'm going to back up for a second. Where did you actually grow up?
1: Linfield, North Shore, north of Boston.
0: Okay. I I only know it from when I'm traveling on Route 128 slash 95 and you see the signs for it.
1: When Um, I was growing up, there were still some farms there. Uh, Wow when i was real little outside of 128 i mean there were a lot of farms there were dairy farms and things uh i mean and that, all that's where all the milk came from to go into boston it was
0: fairly right. a, a lot of people who don't know boston don't understand that like I, look i live in brooklyn and if you travel out of new york it takes you a while to see a cow or a horse their farms are not really close but boston even today still has like in Wayland, Massachusetts, which is west of 128, or parts of Concord, kind of, there are farms, dairy farms especially. Um, so yeah, I. but at, when you were a kid, or I'll say when we were kids, I'm going to assume we're roughly the same age. I'm not going to ask. But um, I would imagine there were still more farms then. Did you have a fun childhood? Did you know you were going to be doing anything with drama or writing? I mean, as you said, you, you did this you had some stuttering issues. By the way, do you see things with President Biden or um, was it, I forget which King in the English speech. Did you watch the? has anything in recent history or in that movie rung any bells for you? Uh, oh yeah, anywhere? the King's
1: speech. I really, I, I really enjoyed the King's speech. I mean, it was just great storytelling uh, and the story behind the storytelling mm-hmm. of from the time it was written to the time again it made it was like 30 years or something like that wow uh, they had to wait until after the queen mother passed away i heard that because it was you know it was about her husband so but um I, I i wish people didn't have wouldn't have had to wait that long i thought it was a great positive story
0: yes and and as a side note because of my jewish upbringing i always think of wow we. We came close to having an England that didn't care so much about Germany invading the rest of Europe. I mean, the previous king who stepped down, who abdicated, was, I mean, his girlfriend was, at the very least, she slept with a lot of Nazis. That's just a fact. And possibly she was a Nazi spy. There, there, There's a lot of questions about her. Um, I, I know that I'm going to take this completely off the rails with that, because, Duncan, you're, as far as I know, you're not really uh, an aficionado of Nazis in any particular way. I just brought I know, that up.
1: Um, green, I mean, uh, uh, black and red are not my colors. So I kind of shy away from that.
0: Those Excellent. Um, so why did you go to UMass Amherst? What was it about that that was appealing?
1: Several reasons. One, it was a you know it was a state school, um, and I was taking out loans and whatever to get to go to school. Um, uh, I got into some schools that I were on my list that did not get into others, and I was a dual major at UMass: accounting and theater, two separate majors. They was it wasn't accounting for theater. It wasn't creative accounting. Um, it wasn't singing accountants. It was just.
0: <laughs> Was that to appease the parents? Did you really yeah, want to do theater? A backup
1: degree, um, and then in the middle in the middle of my senior year, I loved UMass. First of all, UMass loved the school, loved the teachers and the people there. Dealing with the administration part of things, when the, the paperwork becomes more important than what the paperwork is supposed to do, kind of kind of things. So anyway, in the middle of my senior year, they said they would not count my freshman core courses you have to take toward both degrees. And I was told I was all set for three and a half years. And Mm -hmm. I said, they said, I'd have to pick one degree or the other and come back and retake different sections of my freshman, of those freshman courses. So I said, if I pick the accounting degree, I'll have to come back and retake two semesters of freshman math. And they said, yes. I said, I will have an accounting degree from here and I will have to take freshman math. (laughs) So I just, um, No one looks at your theater degree for acting. They look at your audition. So I took the accounting degree and uh, that helped out when I was going to do temp work. I did a lot of accounting temp work uh, when I was starting out.
0: Oh, I would bet. And you just brought up something really important for people to understand. Um, I had no degree involving acting. Went into it after having been a lawyer, actually. Having taken some, I mean, I acted all throughout college, took acting courses in college, nothing remotely close to a double major. But when I was auditioning for commercials, nobody looked at my resume to see where I got a BFA from. They didn't care. They wanted to know if I could make people laugh in the commercial or sell the product or speak or do the things that they, they the producers wanted done in that. And even as an actor who appeared on New York stages, no one ever cared that I didn't have an acting degree. And you and I both know people with MFAs, Masters in Fine Arts and Acting, who can't get the job done. Um, So in a weird way, credentials have a part to play, but a much smaller part, I think, than we are all led to believe. And by the way, same with lawyering. I know people who went to Harvard Law and, you know, I, I didn't, but nobody asks me where I went to law school, except other lawyers and people who hire me, I don't think they really care. No one's ever asked me what my grades were. I, I mean, just a lot of things that you think matter when you're yeah, going through
1: that permanent record line <laughs> going on your permanent record. Like, where is this?
0: Yeah. Like no one has ever brought up, you know, the detentions I may or may not have gotten, in high school for doing things that I were not. And I'm I'm just going to say the statute's probably wrong. Uh, I know I did go to detention, but I don't remember why. I'm sure that I made someone laugh in the middle of class or something, because that was generally what I did. Um, But back to you. Um, When I, so when I first met you, I'm going to say we were in our 30s, which gives me kind of a gap.
1: Yeah, it was just. Early, we both in I think our early thirties. We were doing that the uh, USITL.
0: You're going to have to remind me what that is. Oh, that's right. Oh, now I remember. I'm sorry. Please say it, because now I know what it is.
1: The US Improv Theater League.
0: (laughs) Right, Nadette Stasa
1: in a half size or miniature (laughs) hockey rink.
0: I have to tell you, now it all is flooding back to me. So what Duncan's saying is I really loved improv, but I was not good at it. I couldn't get into anything. But what happened was Duncan was good and there were quite a few people in that improv league. Um, It was as if there were two hockey teams, but they weren't hockey teams. They were improv teams competing against each other. And I played a coach on one side. I would put people in or take them out or pretend to or whatever. And the audience, each audience member was given a rolled up pair of socks that they could throw at the players. I don't remember why, but it was all great fun. And it was done, if I'm not mistaken, at the Lyric stage. Did we do it at the Lyric stage?
1: Yeah. The Lyric, I think was the last place we did it. We did it at a few places. We did it at a couple hotel ballrooms and some other, other places, um, and also we had we had, don't forget we had we had a referee with a whistle who could who would read off the improvs and tell you if it was going to be a one on one or tag team kind of thing, and it would call you if you are not respecting the prop, if you were not listening, if you were just terrible. They could blow the whistle if you were just terrible. Yeah,
0: being hacky or whatever. Yeah. What What's funny about this is like now that I remember this. It was actually great fun. And I think people would enjoy it even today, although it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's certainly as good entertainment as half the things I see out there. Um, it's great that you remembered that because that there are people I'm friends with on Facebook who now I remember that's why I know them, like Julie Perkins. Yeah. Um, and of course, we lost a couple of people. The problem when you get to the older boys and girls is that sometimes people pass away that you're like how the hell did that happen and i'm blanking on his name right now which is terrible you'll probably know um he's a gentleman who was uh, active with something called the gold dust orphans Larry Larry Cohen yeah so i don't want to bring this down but Larry was a super funny um always nice to me yeah
1: he was brilliant he was when it came to improv i could I, I show you my remember one thing? Please
0: um, let's remember Larry in a fun we were, way.
1: We were doing an improv and one of the other characters, it was like a filmed style of film noir goes to shoot him. And that's kind of rude in improv because you're taking the other character out, right? You're like
0: Yeah, you, it's, it's a big no. It's not it's so certainly not a yes.
1: He puts his fingers together like it's like it's the bullet and makes a ricochet noise off his chest, and then brings his fingers over to the person standing next to him. And that person dropped. Nice. So it bounced off him and killed somebody else. It was brilliant where you, you know, it's like, yes, and. you that was it, a, yeah. And it ricocheted.
0: That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you remember that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great reminder that, uh, that was a long time ago. Like I said, we were in our 30s around that time. But time marches on. And my own, having a few brushes with mortality myself and through other people not too long ago. Just a reminder, don't put off anything. If you want to do something, do it, right? So... i um, well, I
1: got me focused on writing. In 2003, I was shot in a random shooting in Providence. And it paralyzed homie. my upper right quadrant for four months. And I was like, you know, I couldn't act and do anything, and I was like, "You know what? I've been, I've been writing, but I really haven't been pursuing it." So, um, I, uh, my agent in New York dropped me because she said I wasn't serious. My commercial agent about acting, and I said, "Well, I can't really. My right arm doesn't work, and I can't drive my car, my shift car, standard down to New York for auditions." Uh, so she dropped me because I wasn't serious about my career. But anyway, uh, that, by the way,
0: just for the record, I, I saw you all the time working all the time. I got dropped by a New York agent, but I think it's because I just wasn't booking. Like I went on a bunch of commercial auditions and didn't book them. And then they just stopped sending me and said, you know, you're not for us or whatever. Who was your can we out your agent or do you? I'm, no, I'm
1: not going to out her. But okay. I think every time I get a, com- a like a national commercial, I would drop a postcard. Oh, sweet. Oh, you know uh, what? Uh, I don't like that. I just looked at this, you know, like you send out to the cast and people whatever. And I would always make sure I sent one to her because it would be uh, 10% could have been yours.
0: Right. And for people listening, national commercials are lucrative. um People, I've had other commercial actors on uh, the show, and I, I never landed in national. I got, of course, a bunch of regionals, which. The way that actors get paid, as you know, is they get residuals. Uh, a company figures out how much you should get per like a 13-week period or something, and, or unless you negotiated something. Of course, if you're a big deal actor, you just negotiate a fixed fee of you know, a gazillion dollars, whatever. But national, meaning that the whole country gets to see this commercial, means the residuals are calculated, uh, well, just much larger <laughs> because it's all by media market. So I had a commercial that ran in Rhode Island, literally Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Rhode Island. that may be the smallest residual market on the planet. Um, Not to make fun of your home, but I think that's probably right. Little footprint there.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's 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 amazing. I've had I did a commercial. It was a national Chevy commercial, and it was called the Price Slasher, and it was like a B horror flick it was actually won an award before it was released at the big advertising association conference. you see a hand with a big red magic marker. Like it's like you'd see with the knife, you know what I mean? Stabbing stabbing thing. And I'm backing up and backing up, screaming like a girl going, "Ah!" and then next thing I know this thing comes down several times. And now you see wider shot on the sales guy backed up against the sticker on the side of the car (laughs) has been slashed. It hit the air the day that they discovered three co-eds that were killed at the University of Florida, Gainesville.
0: Oh geez. called
1: the guy the Gainesville Slasher. And they, like, Gainesville Slasher killed three, you know, three co-eds more after this. Oh, no! And it went to the commercial, and, like, it didn't even finish. They pulled it? Yeah, I made $30 total in residuals on, a on national the national. School. $30. That's all I made. <laughs> oh my God. It aired less than once
0: yeah just for people to get a sense you usually get tens of thousands of dollars on a national commercial would that yeah, be accurate
1: i've been spending that
0: money in my head you know' like <laughs> oh uh,
1: it's gonna be a great christmas holidays uh, I'm, I'm going south
0: actors always spend money in their head before it hits their pockets um i want to back up a little bit. <laughs> Ooh, what is that sound? Is that you or me? That's me. Ah, okay. But
1: I can't unfortunately if I I can't mute that sound without muting your sound.
0: Gotcha. Um, that's all right. We just apologize to the people they'll survive. Um the the writing I didn't know about until after the shooting. I want to back up a second. I when you live in Boston for people who don't, Providence is like a very cute and great food town to go to. And sometimes you visit someone at Brown or RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, I guess is around there. And um, I shot several commercials in Providence for Dunkin' Donuts because that is the headquarters. Now to back up a second for people who are not from the Boston area, a lot of people know what Dunkin' Donuts is, but it is sort of a religion in New England, to a shocking degree. How many people love?
1: One from the other, so you're never out of sight of a Dunkin' Donuts.
0: Right, I, I'm gonna go on the record here. Um, I'm not a big Dunkin' Donuts fan, just not, sorry. I live in Brooklyn where I get, I can walk to seven different espresso joints. I'm just not gonna search out of Dunkin's. But, and it, since you people can't see this, Dunkin' has gotten very dark. <laughs> He's very, very unhappy with is that are you are you a big Duncan fan? Uh
1: no. Um I was up for several Dunkin' Donuts commercials, which you probably got. Um, and then there was one that I I was after Mystic River had just come out and I was in the, uh, the at the second callback and the clients are there and they basically told me I had the job. And then someone sees on my resume, oh, you were in Mystic River. Oh. What was Clint Eastwood like? And I'm like, oh, he's an interesting guy. He's really he was very nice and everything else. And then the casting director chimes in: Duncan played the child molester. He was excellent as the child molester. And
0: you sound like Angela. I will not do her last name. Okay. Was it Angela? Um,
1: but anyway, but who oh. is? I love her to death. But <laughs> clients were like, oh no, we can't have the child molester be our spokesperson for Dunkin' Donuts this can't happen. So that I did not get.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I also was I said, up for so- it's you and I were up for all kinds of things. I was not up for the child molester. I was up for the, um, medical examiner, but I think in retrospect, I read, I mean, I might've gotten the call back. I just don't remember that that well. But I know that when I saw who they went with, the guy looked like he was an Irish guy from that part of town. And I just look like a New York Jew wherever I go. Maybe a Boston Jew, but I'm not gonna be the medical examiner with those guys who's gonna know them all. It's just not, I get it. Um, As for Duncan, I remember the Dunkin' Donuts commercial, one of them that I did, I remember being suddenly aware of how they shoot commercials with food. Because I think that might have been my first food commercial. And it was a yoga, people doing yoga in different places. Um, it was a multi-story building. And the shooting happened on the various floors coming up and down. Yeah. And um, someone was like looking peaceful in yoga like and eating a cro- sandwich or like, you know, a breakfast croissant kind of thing that Duncan was doing. And after every take, they spit in a bucket. Like they never swallowed it. And I also found out that those sandwiches were cold and not pleasant in general. Um, That was just uh, an education on how they do this. probably
1: brushed it with cooking oil so that it looked like it was fresh and hot. And
0: I know that those, whoever did that shoot worked hard. And I saw the commercials after, Um, and I loved Providence. Every time I went there, it's a very pretty place. It has a very specific look. Um, It doesn't look like any other city or town to me. There's something about the brick and the, I don't know, the the river, and it all just has a very specific look to me. Uh, And they have a great uh, theater there that I believe you're very active with, right?
1: Well, no, I'm not um, uh, only in going to it. Trinity Repertory.
0: That's what I was thinking of. Oh, I thought you had performed there.
1: No, I, worked, I was working with, I, when I came to Providence, was in 96, two friends of mine, uh, Bob Zolly and his wife Susan Arendelle opened A to Z Productions. And we were producing, um, basically bringing Broadway and national tour stars to do, to do shows at a low ticket price. Because when we were young, just like sporting events, entire families could be season ticket holders and go to every game. Right. And that, the prices, you know, now you're lucky if the family can go to one sporting event because it's so expensive. And the same thing with theater. I remember going to see John Raitt um, uh, in uh, a tour in the summertime or all these, I mean, really great named people. And my parents would take and parents would take their kids to go to the theater and it's gotten so expensive. You want to go see Hamilton. You're that one night on the town just for mom and dad's going to cost you the kids college education.
0: So it's, it is incredible. And for people who don't know uh, Duncan just said John Rate. if you're a little younger, uh, Bonnie Raitt's dad, who yeah. was a world famous and you know Broadway actor did he was he in carousel. Was that his big breakthrough yeah. role? Yeah. Was um, he- But I I agree. As a kid growing up on Long Island, there was something called the Westbury Music Fair. And they would very similarly, they would have big name people who were in New York City just a short distance away, but they'd come out to Long Island and they'd do shows that had just been on Broadway. So I saw Promises, Promises when I was a little kid, but I saw it with Frank Gorshin, which is a name that... Kids, you need to look up Frank Gorshin. Besides being the Riddler on the old Batman series, he was a phenomenal mimic and a stand-up comic. He was in actually
1: Rose ringing, wasn't he? On say again, wasn't he in Bells Are Ringing as well?
0: That may be. I, I don't recall. Um, but he was so, a super so talent.
1: Sometimes you you see a national tour, maybe an A tour, but you're not seeing always seeing the people that were on Broadway. You may be a celebrity. Right. But not the person who, you know, really knew how to sell it on the stage. We used to make up shows, touring shows of people touring in shows when they put us like Sammy Davis Jr. in Man of La Macha. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> be like Deltanea, babe. You know, <laughs> just they put a star in the wrong show to sell the dinner theater.
0: Yeah, that that does scream dinner theater. Yeah which I've done, I did dinner theater. And the problem is at intermission, people double up on the drinks. And then in the second act, they start talking to the actors on stage. And that was problematic for me to ignore certain. It's usually also older women. I was again, younger and in better shape. And I came out, it was a farce that I did somewhere in Quincy in a dinner theater there. And I came out in pajamas. It was a kind of nuns on the run kind of thing. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, And long story short, um, they were getting out of hand. Uh, I was nervous there wasn't security. By the way, I don't fancy myself, you know, a particularly attractive person. But when, you know, all older women were drunk and start asking you to take your pajamas off, it's a distraction for an actor.
1: Well, when you were younger, you kind of had that Neil Diamond thing going, you know.
0: Uh, Thanks. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, but let's get back to you, Tony. Um, so, first of all, there was a random shooting that you were involved in. Were you literally just a bystander and something terrible happened? I was talking to two of my neighbors, or several
1: neighbors, talking to two of them were close to me, and we are talking about fixing a fence that we had that was kind of rotten. So the bullet went between their heads. It wouldn't hit oh my me in the God. path. But... I would just turn to grab the fence and say, see, it's all, it's really barely hanging up there because I, instead of hitting me in the chest because I turned at just the right moment, it entered my shoulder and went through my bicep and stopped at my elbow and nerve damage, which luckily it got better. Not a hundred percent. My handwriting is different and whatever, but, uh, and I will never play the violin.
0: Did you see the shooter?
1: No, I thought my hand touched the fence and when it happened, and it was like touching a live wire. So it hurt like heck for a split second, my muscle spasmed, and then everything was pins and needles numb. It fell to my side, and I thought there's a wire on the fence. The people I'm talking to heard the snap when it went past their ears. So they're down, kneeling on the ground, crunched down, looking around for where the bullet came from. And I'm still standing there like, hey, is there a wire on this fence? I just got zapped, and then I felt wet. And I looked down and I saw the blood coming down my side. And thank you, Boy Scouts. I reached under my armpit to the artery and pinched it. So I maybe lost a pint of blood, if that. And two absolutely gorgeous uh, ambulance rescue people from the fire department came. And when they saw there was no exit wound, out came the scissors and the, the... They started on one side of me, went up my pant leg, threw my belt, up my shirt, and cut my clothes off me, trying to make sure that the bullet didn't bounce around my torso or something. Sure. And when I checked out of the hospital, they gave me my bag of clothes and said, give us the gown back. You can put your clothes back on. I said, well, those used to be clothes. Now it's a poncho and chaps, and you cut the belt so I can't even hold the chaps up.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I... They got I mean, I love emergency personnel. They, you know, the doctors and nurses, amazing people. They were slammed that night. I don't know if it was a full moon at the hospital, but I got post-traumatic stress from dealing with the insurance company. Yeah, Literally, It was an elective procedure and I wasn't covered. <laughs> and I, I was on for two and a half weeks with them. Before I got them to admit that maybe a gunshot wound should be covered. And it was not, I didn't shoot myself and it wasn't a cosmetic shooting.
0: You know, there's no way you can make fun of something that effing stupid. That's just horrific. And having been an attorney for some insurance companies, um, that's why, well, that's one of the many reasons I don't do that kind of work anymore. The business of insurance companies, and I can say this because I'm never going to have an insurance sponsor. They're, they look at their world as they're supposed to take money in and then never pay it out no matter what. And yeah, that's, that's just a great example.
1: Every time they say no, somebody drops out of the process. And even though they deserve the money, they just said like, okay, I guess I don't get it. And so the, the, they get to hold on to it.
0: That's why so many people you know, get lawyers involved and should. Yeah. And I'm not, this is not legal advice, boys and girls. I'm just saying anyone who goes up against an insurance company without an attorney Is just making a big mistake. I mean, unless you were—I mean, I don't know if you to an attorney, but ultimately you resolved it. I'm guessing if you hadn't resolved it after a certain amount of time, you would have contacted somebody because I mean, you just can't. Every day, and I got so
1: mad, and I said, "You know, this um, is—I have access to the media. I'm hanging up, calling the NBC Consumer Reporter, telling her I was a crime victim and I was shot, and my insurance company said I elected to be a crime victim and I elected to get shot." and I hung up the phone. Within 15 minutes, I get a call, and this person's going, of course you're covered. Who told you you're not covered?
0: Oh, right.
1: Every person I've talked to, and well, they must've been looking at the wrong code. And I said, the words gunshot wound came up over and over again, so.
0: I'm glad it did get resolved, and just because people won't see you, you don't look any different than I remember you, I mean, other than a little gray. Um, but you're, you are able to move and be great. And I'm really grateful. It's amazing your neighbors didn't get killed and you didn't get killed. And it's a great example. Uh, you know, I'm very familiar with firearms. I grew up using firearms uh, a lot. My father was a collector and a target shooter. And I, I owned a rifle as a kid, a twenty-two, which sounds like, a. I mean, it doesn't sound like much more than a twenty-two where there would have been a lot more damage, I think.
1: I was lucky. It was a small caliber. Um, uh, they, the cops thought it was, uh, they said, because there were four other shootings. I think it was gang initiation night where they parked the car, they hand the gun to the new kid and it's just about dusk. And they say, see a group of people shoot somebody, you know, and you're in the gang, which does two things. They make their bones and they got leverage on. So if the person ever rats them out, they can say on this night, we shot somebody on the corner of the street in that street. Right. Um, you know, people talk about gun control and all that stuff. But my personal opinion is it's not so much the gun is that this, there are people that haven't got a problem with pointing a, a deadly weapon of any kind at a stranger and pushing the button. You know what I mean? I just, that's what, but that's a whole nother topic, but yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. when, when did you it was in Afghanistan, two tours in Iraq, bronze star really proud of the guy, no purple heart. And I had to call him from the hospital saying, don't freak mom and dad out. I have to give a, you know, a name of a next of kin or whatever, you know, someone to call. And I said, I have insurance at the time, you know, you know, whatever. And I said, I, you know, I think I'm going to be okay, but I'll, I'll call mom and dad when I'm out of the hospital. That's smart. Goes, wow. It's a good thing. They didn't send me to Providence. I might've got hurt.
0: <laughs> he was, he was in two tours in Afghanistan, your brother.
1: It was in Afghanistan when we first went in. He was He helped, He helped. was the air liaison officer that helped uh, build up Bagram Air Base from a so- bombed out Soviet air base when we first went in. And then he was in the invasion of Iraq with 100, they uh, attached him to the 101st Airborne. And then he went back another time. I'm not quite sure he was doing it. I really don't, you know.
0: And you got shot more than he did.
1: Yeah, not shot at. I told him, but there's, there's a difference. If I didn't know if someone was going to shoot at me, I wouldn't have gone outside you know someone's shooting (laughs) at you, and you keep going, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, I will say that in gun safety classes, they they have an expression, know your backstop, meaning when you're going to be shooting, you understand the bullet goes for quite some distance. They can literally go a mile or more, depending on the the caliber and the load of it and everything. Um, And when people go hunting, even, um, they need to make sure they're going somewhere where if they miss the deer or whatever, they're not going to kill somebody. And that's why there's so many laws about where you can fire a gun and where you can't, and all that jazz. Kids, please be careful out there. Dunk, you know, Someone like Duncan who's just living his life is out there. You do not need to be shot. I'm really glad that you're okay. And that's almost, I mean, that's a long time ago. That, uh, I can't even imagine.
1: But it's just a bit, I look at life as, you know, I don't get, let try to let things get me down. I just look at a lot of times things are just absurd stuff happens and use it. If you're a writer, use it.
0: Well, great segue. So you, you really made efforts in writing and I know that we've stayed in touch via social media and I've seen you have tremendous success with your writing. So let's talk about that. Cause I, I mean, you and I both know about the commercial work we've done and theater and such, but when you first started writing, and it wasn't terribly long, at least in my experience, that you started to have some success. What was the first real success you felt you had as a writer?
1: Um, I'm A few contests, and then I'm involved with the Rhode Island International Film Festival, and I would say, let me please, I just said, let me write your public service announcement. Nothing against the people who've been doing it, but People try to make a public service announcement about a documentary about the organization and it's 15 to 30 seconds. You you have to just grab one emotion and do it. And I wrote one was called canisters and we found people that were inspired to be what they are because of a film. So we would have like a firefighter holding a film canister that says, uh, uh, was it backflash was the movie? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. The Ron Howard.
1: Uh, a, a prize fighter who's, you know, Raging Bull. Or, you know, all these different things that people were just, and the voiceover was, if one, if just one film could inspire you and change your life, imagine what, I think it was like 365 films could do. Whatever, whatever the number of films was in that year. That's ended a up, great idea. And it ended up winning an Emmy. And then that sponsored, that got me into another idea with a friend of mine, We started, we're sort of on hold for the last couple of years, but it was called the seven-day PSA competitions, where we it was for filmmakers, seven days long. And we challenged the teams. They're given the day one, they're given the information of a local nonprofit that provides a needed service to the community. So food kitchens, homeless shelter, drug rehab, as opposed to the light opera company or Gilbert and Sullivan or whatever. Not that nothing anything wrong with them, but they needed service ones and they don't have the assets and the money to have a broadcast quality public service announcement made. And these people write, shoot, and edit them, uh, usually three to four teams per nonprofit. And the, um, uh, the nonprofit gets to pick which ones they like. And many times they pick all the ones that were made for them. And we have media sponsors in Boston, it's Channel 5, WCBB, um, Karen Holmes Ward up there, who we talked to. And she was on board in two seconds, and they air one PSA per nonprofit for a year in like prime time. They're amazing. And we put them in for Emmy Award consideration. So three of those have won Emmy Awards, and a couple more have been nominated.
0: I wanna back up a second. I know I'm interrupting you, but I'm sure our listeners are like me going, hang on, because you said a little while ago you won an Emmy for a commercial. Or a, a public service announcement. Yeah, no. and I have been in the business a long time and didn't know that you can win Emmys for commercials or public service announcements. So, can, as the kids say, unpack that for me. Like explain that.
1: You can win. A, you can win an Emmy. I don't think for a commercial, but for a, a, a public service uh, single spot or public service campaign. There's two, two gotcha. categories.
0: Well, that's I mean, so you literally have a little wing trophy.
1: No, I didn't get the, cause it was like 200, like 300 bucks at the time. So <clears throat> I got, I have a plaque. I got, I chose the plaque. It was cheaper. The producer got the the trophy.
0: Got it. But you still, you're an Emmy award winning writer. Is that accurate?
1: Yes. I'm an Emmy award person who's unemployed in many fields. That's <laughs> what I say.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: well, but you're not I, alone.
0: You're not alone. There's plenty there, of them
1: but that was, that was, that was really encouraging. You know what I mean? It wasn't an Academy Award for Ben-Hur, but still it was like, okay, I guess I, I got a knack. I mean, it kind of reinforces, I think I'm good, but am I good or am I just a legend in my own brain? Uh, and so that encouraged me to go further. We made uh, some short films that have done, produced our own short films that have done very well. Uh, had uh just before COVID hit, I had uh, two scripts. That we, we thought we had sold uh, feature-length scripts, and then,
0: well, yeah, the market just dried up when suddenly everything, everything closed. Up. Yeah, everything's in turnaround, as they say, and it's not. It's not personal. I mean, that's a great lesson for a lot of people. Um, some, you know, I live in Brooklyn, where they were shooting some things uh, once the vaccine started to happen. But they had tre- and have tremendous protocols in place uh, you know, for uh, safety and medical and all that sort of thing. But I live near some places and parks and things where people love to shoot films and commercials because they're very pretty. And it looks like Brooklyn or Washington, D.C. or several other places with brownstones and parks and such. Um, but for the most part, a lot of stuff just still hasn't even started up yet. I feel like with show business especially, it's a whole industry that's just, everyone just can't wait to do something. And the floodgates are gonna open. And my hope is that everybody's gonna be crazy busy. Is that how you see it or do you see it any differently?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping. Um, I think the COVID accelerated the whole streaming business. Uh, but I, I'm really hoping that it does. It didn't. It hasn't been the death knell for traditional theaters, because I'm saying my dinner with Andre. I can see that on my computer screen. Okay, I don't mind seeing that on my computer screen. But when it comes to um, Lawrence of Arabia, yeah, out of Africa, Lawrence, or, or what's coming up, Dune, or whatever, I want to see that on a big screen.
0: Sure, In not a, on an iPhone.
1: When yeah, when I sit outside to watch the sunset. I want to see it on the Sky IMAX, you know what I mean, in 3D. I don't want to see on my phone.
0: It's something
1: you'll see big.
0: I I agree. I think that, look, I live in a city where real estate is at a premium. And so a lot of theaters just plain disappeared. A few stuck around, a few got reopened, like the Paris, which is a very nice big screen near near the, the Plaza Hotel. But the Zickfield, which is also known as this giant screen, I don't know if they closed and never reopened. Um, my neighborhood theater is open. I'm going to be honest. I haven't gone back yet. I'm not, I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. My wife is, I wear the mask as appropriate, but I mean, I still a little, you know, iffy on on going into a crowded place with a bunch of people. I'm not confident about the ventilation, uh, and I live in an area, again, where I think most people are vaccinated in my hoity-toity part of Brooklyn, but I don't know about other big cities or even small towns in their theaters. I just don't know. Um, and I thought, honestly, that once the vaccines hit, we'd be back. I had no idea that we were going to run into this nonsense. Did you? Are you more adroit at figuring out how effed up crazy people are?
1: Well, I think the Delta variant... Uh it, you know, it was the boomerang that came back to hit us. And um, people blame, you know, called anti-vaxxers or whatever on us as a, as a recent phenomenon. And that's been around for a long time. I just think it blossomed during COVID. I mean, because uh, on both ends of the political spectrum, you have Robert Kennedy Jr., on one end, who's a huge anti-vaxxer saying that it was going to, you know, cause autism, vaccines cause autism and everything else. And then more recently, even an anti-vaxxer when it came to the COVID vaccine. Uh, and then there are people on the far right uh, who are, who are, who are anti-vaxxers. I don't think, you know, I'm an equal opportunity basher when it comes to politics. I'm like, just listen and tell me what you feel and whatever, but I'm sorry, your emotional facts don't trump real facts.
0: Right. I'm with you. They may be
1: valid to you. I respect that. But, you know, show me the science that says that if you don't get vaccinated, nothing, you know, nothing happens.
0: I think it's my training as an attorney that has helped me, you know, when you think of evidence and terms like the preponderance of the evidence or beyond a reasonable doubt, these these different um levels of uh oh, what's the word I'm trying to use the uh levels of proof i'm not coming up with the exact wording i want to but the bottom line is um there there are very specific rules for evidence in a court of law and it can't just be well i feel this happened that just doesn't must that doesn't pass muster um first what's that best evidence first yeah i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of things, a lot of rational thought seems to have gone out the window. Now it has been for some people very entertaining, but more like Christians and lions entertaining, which is a little high stakes uh, on both sides of that aisle. Um, But anyway, I'll try to get back to, so, so you have some scripts that are, are they shooting ready? Are they pitch ready? What is the oh, yeah. status shooting, of them? Shooting ready, I mean, I never,
1: I mean, for me, a script is never done. I'm always taking them back out and writing them and writing them. And um, I have to say that I work with a guy. Uh, we have a our little LLC called Original Concept and Development Associates with a friend of mine, Andre Stark. And he comes from the producing. He's worked for PBS and the producing size, everything else. He's good about getting in the door and getting in the room. That's not my forte. You know I mean? There's a guy that can build the or design the cars. And then there's a guy in the plaid jacket that can sell the car. Two different skill sets. Sure. Um, and I can't say where we, two weeks ago, uh, we had a phone pitch meeting with a well-known award Oscar winning company on the West coast. And normally if I got, it was able to pitch like three pitches in a meeting is good. And then it's usually, that's interesting, what else you got? And you go the next thing, nah, what else you got? And then the third time, they're like, oh, yeah, send that script. We pitched five of my scripts, three feature-length and two pilot scripts. They asked to read every single one of them.
0: Wow, that's fantastic.
1: Fast <clears throat> forward to three days later, that was on a Friday. On the Monday, looking at the trades, just, and that particular company, we found out, it's, had just signed a deal with the major one of the major studios to provide content for streaming. So they're hungry for content. So I think that's why they asked to read all,
0: because
1: right. they got, you know, it isn't like, oh, we'll produce this film in two years, we'll produce another one that now they're thinking, we'll produce five films this year, and then five films next year, you know, because they got to they gotta supply that, that, that hunger. Because I think everybody who was locked up saw everything that they wanted to see.
0: I was just about to say, you know, my wife and I have revisited some old things. We've seen uh, some new things. We saw things we'd never thought we'd see, like French series. My, my wife speaks French fluently, but there's subtitles, so that's fine. Specifically one called Le Pen, uh, about a gentleman thief. And another one called call my agent uh, about uh, movie agents in paris loves that yeah that's a fantastic show um and it was really well done well acted yada yada but after i'm ted lasso which i'm addicted to which i think is fantastic and but at a certain point you you run out of stuff and it's like do i really want to rewatch friends i mean that's fine it's great but yes, there's a, we're all ready to see something new. Do you feel like um, streaming is now more egalitarian? There's more money, there's more green light potential. Are you at all concerned that production values will be low? I mean, do you have thoughts in general? And I, by the way, if you feel like you really don't wanna talk about it because you're in the thick of it, you don't want anyone to go that you're a downer in any way, I can appreciate that also. I'll give
1: you my two cents. My and again it's my my opinion, take it for what it's worth. Um, I think every production is because I've seen some things like, wow, this is a great script, but the production value is, you know, if they just spent a few more dollars on, you know, on it, you know. Right. Yes, you know, like hire a few more extras because the this world that these principal people live in have a positive population of like three
0: and i keep seeing the same guy I mean, just wearing a different shirt
1: yeah you know it's just or um you could see where they were saving saving pennies and i think it hurt themselves because they they're losing dollars on the other end for people who may want to pay that dollar to see it um i invented oh i said it. i came up with a term i call it you said of uh, binge watching i call it cringe watching where I've started a series and I've invested I'm like three four episodes in and I'm not liking it at all but I've invested three so I'm watching it all the way to the end and still hating every episode because I'm like Ugh, ah no you know
0: you're not alone Duncan I've done this I did this with something new I feel awkward saying the title but it was up for a golden globe much to everybody's surprise. And it involved a a young woman's name and the place of a famous city. (laughs) Oh, hell, Emily in Paris. I just think it's terrible. And I couldn't help myself. I had to watch every episode. Now, you may love it. And people, if you loved it or hated it, you can write to me, go to isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place where you can leave me a message, try to keep it clean and nice. And you may even have a question for Duncan. I can always try to get to him and get it back to you. But do you want to share what, because I also felt that way about Girls. And you know, Judd Apatow produced it and all these people are supposed to be brilliant and whatnot. But there was something about watching Girls for me that I just could not, you know, I don't get the whole Lena Dunham thing. I'm sure she's brilliant. It's just beyond me. I don't I, that show is just, I didn't get it.
1: Well, I don't, I don't put, I don't want to put any any show down because it's just like I took a date to see Brazil, years ago, and that was the last date she went on with me. Well, that is
0: not a date movie. for people who don't know. Brazil was a Terry Gilliam directed movie that is. I mean, it stars amongst people Robert De Niro and is it Stephen Fry? No, uh, uh, who's the uh, the the British guy
1: from Soap? Was it Hel- was it Hellman or
0: whatever? yeah, yeah. Hellman?
1: It is a dark, dark. Yeah.
0: Talk about a dystopian future. Same isn't with
1: Time n- Bandits. You know, it's like I I enjoyed it. They didn't. I can't fault them for that. You know, they're looking at me like, I, like I'm an idiot for enjoying it. I'm like, well, I... Sorry.
0: They are great movies, by the way. They're dark as heck, but they are great movies. I love Terry Gilliam. He's got a complete... There's a guy with a vision. He goes into a movie... He knows what he wants to do, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And he accomplishes it. And one of my all-time favorite movies is The Fisher King. Oh, yeah. Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, uh, um, and um, Amanda Plummer, who I think is an underutilized, brilliant talent. She is also one of those, like, orange crayons. Like, you can't... She's not going to be in every movie. She can't be. She is just not suitable for everything. But when you get her in the right role, Amanda Plummer is just the greatest, and she was great in that. I thought.
1: I I just watched one uh, last couple of days on is on Netflix, uh, the Defeated, about post war takes place post war Germany, and um, they're sort of digging out, and there's this local police precinct in the American sector in Berlin, which they're trying to start up, and it's basically like housewives and some teenagers, and they're not allowed to have guns. They have sticks and they're, and they're trying to solve murders.
0: Wow. But that's a, that's an unusual idea. I'm not sure that turns me on so much, but I am impressed that someone had the thought about that's a very real, that's a real world. And people had to manage as someone who's been to Berlin and seen that there are still things they haven't rebuilt when I was there just a couple of years ago, especially on the East side uh that's that's a wild talk about a city fraught with history where you can just feel like there's it's a beautiful place and it it is the most haunted place I've ever been just you can feel the history haunting people I don't think I could live there not just because I'm Jewish whatever just because like the the history there is just heavy as heck have you been to Berlin I have not I've only I mean, been
1: to, I've been to England, uh, English, Scotland, Wales, and then, um, to sort of visit the old family haunts, I guess. And, uh, as a kid, uh, summer, summer in Switzerland and, uh, and the Netherlands and a day in Italy because we wanted to ride through the Simplon Tunnel on the train because we were kids. It's like the longest tunnel in the world back then.
0: Italy's great. You should go back and actually eat something there it would be worth your time. Well,
1: we, we're, we had. In Italy, we split one helping of ravioli because it was huge. <laughs> we shared one. It was like a serving platter, but it was one helping of ravioli.
0: I've never had a bad meal in Italy. I'm just going to put it out there. I've gone to a lot of places. Um, but we're going to have to wrap up soon, Duncan. Um, do you have thoughts that you might share with people about writing? That's sort of like saying, do I have thoughts about the law? But, you know, there's so many rules they have to learn before you can break them. And you know, when do you know it's done, if it's ever done, or yeah, one of the best movies I ever saw about writing was Adaptation. Because and I don't know if you remember that movie um, where this gentleman played by Nick Cage is a is based on a real life screenwriter who the same screenwriter that did um being John Malkovich, as well as other movies. And he's given this incredible task to make a screenplay out of a book about um, flowers, in essence, um, and uh, orchids, actually. And the movie is really, in a sense, all about good writing and bad writing and rules and no rules. Did you see that movie by any chance?
1: Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, uh, But, yeah, I mean, it's just... I think just like everyone's life experience is different. You really can't pattern yourself after really anybody else. You could admire people. And like with with acting, I say, um, as you go, as as an actor goes through life, you're no one acting teacher or whatever is going to teach you everything you need, but they may hand you a tool that you find extremely useful, one little tool, and you put that in your tool bag. That you take with you as you go through life. And slowly but surely you're filling up with all these wonderful tools that work for you. Now, and you may big not big big even
0: use them all the time. You may hardly ever use them, but when you need that one tool, you have it. And when I think of a big
1: tool, I'm thinking of me.
0: <laughs> and, you're too self-deprecating. And then
1: writing's the same way. I look at writing as um, as I go through life, they're like little puzzle pieces you're finding on the ground all over the place. These little puzzle pieces from different puzzles. You don't even know what the puzzle is. It's colorful. It's got you know it's like and then one day, you know, you're reaching in and all those things you've been picking up, you're like, you know, you start putting them together. I'm like, "Oh my god, they're from different puzzles, but they're fitting and they're making a picture." And whatever and and you're like, "Wow, this is so original. Why didn't someone think of this before?" But that's just you Yeah. Been, open to the possibilities of that. And don't chase trends. Because if you chase trends, you you will never have a polished screenplay or whatever in time before the trend's over. Write what you want to write. And then when the trends come, they, they, they come around cycles, when it comes around, you'll have the most polished screenplay that you when you put it in front of someone, they're like, wow, this is amazing, not like, well, it's a cool concept if you work on it for another year you know, maybe it'll be good. But by that time, the trend's gone. We don't want
0: it. I love that you live in Rhode Island and still have the possibility of uh, having a film hit. You don't need to be, you know, there's this thought that to be a successful screenwriter, you must live in Los Angeles or you must live in New York. Um, And I really like that you are doing what you're doing. You might have a partner who, or you might ultimately go to LA for certain things. But you don't have to completely change your life to pursue this passion, right?
1: And tech, with, with technology now, you know, you're like, we're having a conversation right here. I don't have to take the Peter Pan bus or the Hua <clears throat> from Chinatown in Boston down to Canal Street. You know, oh my god, you know, the fungwa. So um, we, we can have an in-person conversation.
0: For, for people who don't know, there was a bus company called the Wah, which went from Boston to New York. And they would do it like every couple of hours or was it, I don't know, hour. But the Wah was known as this kind of bus. It was very cheap and absolutely worth that amount of money in that it was, I'm just going to say it. There were many terrifying moments for people. I never took it, but it, you you know, some people, it's like getting on the bus and there's a goat next to you, or they literally burst into flames. I'm not Like, they had fires.
1: In the middle of the night, you see two drivers on 95 changing, swapping places. They didn't pull over. (laughs) They're
0: they're driving and,
1: like, in the middle of a car chase. Um, Then they got the double liquor fungwas, and they drove, like, (laughs) overpasses.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm not in the fungwa days anymore, but Duncan Putney... Is there anything you felt we should have talked about that we didn't before we wrap this up?
1: Uh, you know, we um, Well, when it comes to you and me having a, a chat, I think we could probably go on for a couple hours and a couple more cocktails. But, <laughs> that was uh, good. Uh, yeah, maybe we can do it again sometime. Um, I would love it
0: by the way, next time you come in into the city, meaning New York City, yeah. um, give me a heads up and we will do just that. We'll find a nice bar and spend a lot of time laughing and drinking and going over some stuff i really appreciate that
1: because new york has changed a lot since i used to hang out there on the upper west side
0: <laughs> that's right well on that note duncan Putney, thank you so much for being on is that really legal with eric rubin it was great to see you thanks so much
1: thanks you'd be good
0: <laughs> well i'll do Th- my best
1: stay sane
0: <laughs> thanks you too Well, that was Duncan Putney and I just get excited to talk to lots of different creative people with all sorts of stories, no straight lines, no two stories the same. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed catching up with Duncan. Uh, Please subscribe to this podcast. It's easy. You can do it through any of the zillions of ways you get this podcast, whether you got it on Audible or iHeartRadio or Apple or who knows it's available and you can subscribe and that way you never have to think about it again it just keeps coming at you also please rate this podcast we're very excited we've gotten some good ratings and we'd love to get some more and of course if you have any questions you want me to interview anybody or you don't want me to interview anybody let me know go to isthatreallylegal.com and you'll see there's a way to leave me messages and do all that kind of stuff So thanks again. Please stay well, wear a mask, get your vaccine, and let women choose to do what they want with their body. Okay? It's not, guys, it's not our bodies. It's their choice. They are very political. Have a great week.